morning, church. Our scripture today is found in Nehemiah, Nehemiah chapter 8, verses 1 through 12. Nehemiah 8, 1 through 12. When the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their towns, all the people gathered together at the square in front of the water gate. They asked the scribe Ezra to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had given Israel. On the first day of the seventh month, the priest Ezra brought the law before the assembly of men, women, and all who could listen with understanding. While he was facing the square in front of the water gate, he read out of it from daybreak until noon before the men, the women, and those who could understand. All the people listened attentively to the book of the law. The scribe Ezra stood on a high wooden platform made for this purpose. Mattathiah, Shema, Aniah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Maaseah stood beside him on his right. To his left were Padeah, Mishael, Malchijah, Hashem, Hashbadana, Zechariah, and Meshulam. Ezra opened the book in full view of all the people since he was elevated above everyone. As he opened it, all the people stood up. Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and with their hands uplifted all the people, said, Amen, Amen. Then they knelt low and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Joshua, Benai, Sherebiah, Jamin, Achab, Shabbatai, Hodiah, Maaseah, Kelida, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, and Peleah, who were Levites, explained the law to the people as they stood in their places. They read out of the book of the law of God, translating and giving the meaning so that the people could understand what was read. Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who were instructing the people said to all of them, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep, for all the people were weeping as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go and eat what is rich, drink what is sweet, and send portions to those who have nothing prepared, since the day is holy to our Lord. Do not grieve, because the joy of the Lord is your strength. And the Levites quieted all the people, saying, be still, since the day is holy. Don't grieve. Then all the people began to eat and drink, send portions, and have a great celebration, because they had understood the words that were explained to them. This is the word of God for the people of God. Yeah. Let's come to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much, Lord, that again you have gathered your church to worship you, and to hear from you through the singing of songs and through the scripture that has been read. We thank you so much that you have spoken to us. And right now we ask, Lord, that you would continue to speak to us through the preaching of your word. We ask, Lord, that you would be with Buster as he speaks to us. And like those who heard your word in our scripture texts, we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would give us ears that are attentive and that we would respond 
in the same way, that we would respond with awe and with worship. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Good morning, church. Thank you, PJ. When I was assigned that text and saw those list of names, I knew only one person to call. So uh, I'm going to effort to get through this uh, sermon and not have to read those names. Uh, again, I needed my brother who had four semesters of Hebrew at Beeson to, to bail me out there. But um, thank you for that. It was, it was a, a blessing to me. But uh, this morning we're going to continue uh, looking at the the book of Nehemiah uh, will cover chapter 7 and 8 uh, primarily, and really looking at verses 1 through 12 in chapter 8. So uh, in Nehemiah 1 through 6, it's, it's all about the people building the wall, and it kind of transitions at this point, and the rest of the book is about the building of people. And so in the text that, that PJ just read, we see that now the, the Jewish exiles have returned, um, and they're having this fresh encounter with God through his word. And even before we really get into it, just hearing it one time through, you're struck by their, their reverence for God's word, right? You're, you see its powerful effect on them. And just reminded me of the power of God's word. Let's not forget that. And, and since God's word is powerful, access to God's word is a, is a really significant thing, right? It's a massively significant thing. It's important for us to remember that, that many saints throughout history have not had access to God's word like we do, and, and not just throughout history, but even today. Many people around the world don't have access to the Bible like we do. It got me thinking about a young Martin Luther, right? Luther was, was actually 20 years old before he even saw his first Bible. He saw it in a university, in a, in a library, and um, eventually, uh, a short time later, he was converted by, by studying the book of Romans, and so he became um, resolved to basically get the, the scripture into the hands of the people, to, to get them access to a Bible that they could understand. And so he set about to translate the Bible into German. Do you remember this? He, he stated this, that he wanted to translate the Bible into German so that any plowboy could read Christ's word. And so he did just that. He translated almost the entire Bible into German in just 11 weeks, locked away in this castle in Wartburg, Germany. It's an incredible thing. And so it gets us thinking about just the important role that Scripture played in the Protestant Reformation. And then eventually these rallying cries of the Reformation emerged, and one of those kind of distilled into sola scriptura. Maybe you've heard of this. It's a Latin phrase meaning scripture alone, that scripture's the, the final rule for faith and practice, that we don't stand above scripture, that in fact we stand under scripture, that the, the words of men are evaluated by comparing them to the teaching of the Bible. So sola scripture was a really important idea. I wonder if you've ever, um, maybe you ever just gotten really fired up about something and, and done something out of character. Has that ever happened to you guys? You got really excited and you just kind of did something that later you look back on and you kind of shake your head on that. Um, when I was, uh, I was a sophomore in college and, and it was the first I had heard um, of this concept of sola scripture and I heard of it alongside um, of these other five solas, grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, scripture alone, to the glory of God alone, and, 
And God had recently just done a work in my heart and really kind of freed me from some legalistic ways of thinking. And just his grace was really just new and fresh to me. And I decided um, then and there that, you know, I was 19 or 20. It was high time that, that I got a tattoo of significance, right? And, um, you know, if I was going to have any credibility, it was time. And so uh, I went over to the computer and um, got on Microsoft Word. And well, first I Googled. Uh, the one that really stood out to me was, was Grace Alone, Solar Gratia, right? And so I Googled it, made sure I was spelling it correctly. And then I, um, you know, drug a few different fonts in for Microsoft Word and spent about, you know, 15 minutes and designed, you know, something that would be on my arm forevermore. And so, um, so from there, I went to 4th Street Tattoo in Hattiesburg, Mississippi, and said, hey, here's on this paper. You know, I want it, want it right here on the shoulder. And so, uh, so Solar Gratia still, still sits there, right? Have you ever have you ever done things when you were really excited and you kind of thought back later, like, well, you know, that, that was interesting. I mean, I was, I was really... Um, Really excited. I even changed my email address to, to solargrati at hotmail.com. So uh, it, was a, it was a big deal. So, um, but before um, I was getting um, ink done and before um, Luther uh, was leading uh, the Germans back to the scripture, there was a scribe named Ezra um, who led the Jewish people uh, back to the scripture. So that's what we read about in chapter 7 and 8. Chapter 7, um, it's a little bit of a, of a tough read, honestly, uh, but it's, it's a list of a lot of folks, and it's, it's Nehemiah recording uh, what is the repopulation of Jerusalem. So now the walls are built, and people are coming back and repopulating the city. This is the genealogy of those returning to the city. So it's a list of a lot of folks and numbers of them. It's a homecoming of sorts. And so he lists the original leaders, the laymen, the priests, the Levites, the singers, the gatekeepers, and all of these people are coming back into this city now. And so the grand total is about 50,000 people, 50,000 exiles return to the city. And that gets us to chapter 8. And in chapter 8, we realize that God wanted more than just a populated city, that he wanted more than just a city with security and a city that was filled with people. He was after the hearts of those that inhabited the city. That was the, the ultimate purpose. So we get to, to glean from how these returning exiles, um, how they related to God through his word. So what we're going to do this morning is just look at their example and, and really just pray to the Lord and say, Lord, Lord may it be for me. May, may you do that in my heart. So let's look at verse 1. Verse 1 again reads, When the seventh month came, and the Israelites had settled in their towns, all the people gathered together at the square in front of the water gate. So all the people gathered together in the square. They were all out there together. A couple different commentaries I read estimated this crowd between 30 and 50,000 people gathered together in front of the Watergate. And you theologians, of course, know this has nothing to do with Richard Nixon. This is just where the actual Watergate was. They gathered in this big place, uh, this square. It was large enough for, for this crowd to assemble. Have you ever been in a maybe in a, a small town on, on a Friday night and the town shuts down for the football game. Maybe you've, you've seen this if you haven't experienced, maybe depicted in, in movies or, or TV shows. It's kind of what I picture. You know, everyone is, everyone's gathered in the square. You know, you're, 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 you almost feel out of place if you're not there. I, 
you know, I, I felt this way a few years ago. I hadn't lived in, in Birmingham too long, and, and I went to Publix, and I was uh, struck because, you know, there's only like two or three people in there, and, I, and all of a sudden these, these left-behind books I read in high school are kind of coming back in my mind. And, um, and then I realized, oh, this is, like, this is the Iron Bowl. The Iron Bowl is going on right now. Everybody's at home watching the game, and it was just me and two people in Publix, you know. Um, and so I think that, that that's kind of probably how it felt. Everyone came out. They were all together. And so it was a significant time. Something was happening. A movement was happening. Everyone's there. There's immediately something we notice about. Let's keep reading at the end of verse 1 and down into verse 4. It says, They asked the scribe Ezra to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had given Israel. And on the first day of the seventh month, the priest Ezra brought the law before the assembly of men, women, and all who could listen with understanding. While he was facing the square in front of the water gate, he read out of it from daybreak until noon before the men, the women, and those who could understand. And all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. The scribe Ezra stood high on a wooden platform made for this purpose. So firstly, we notice it's really obvious, right? Their hunger for the word. We notice their hunger for the word. And we see it in a few different ways. And one is that they're seeking out teaching. They're seeking out teaching. Look what they tell Ezra. You can see their desire. They tell him, they told Ezra to bring the book. So Ezra, bring the book of the law. They were seeking him out. Ezra wasn't passing out flyers to get people to show up. He didn't have to bribe them with a pizza dinner to come out for this. But no, they're asking him. They're seeking him out. Bring the book. Read it to us. Tell us what it says. We want to hear from the Lord. They're seeking out teaching. They're hungry for the word. Not only are they seeking out teaching, they're attentively listening. They're listening attentively. And you guys probably hoped I wasn't going to get to this verse right here, getting nervous as you sit right there. But, but they're listening to Ezra preach for six hours from daybreak till noon. It's every pastor's favorite passage here, right? They're, they're standing, right? They're not sitting in comfortable chairs and air-conditioned rooms. They're standing outside in the sun in the Middle East for six hours. Something's happening, right? They're listening to this word. That would be tough for it, would it not? That'd be tough for us to to sit and listen for six hours, much less stand. I mean, for six hours, you know, Kevin Martin would need 12 coffee breaks to make it through that. So um, it would be hard for a lot of us. I wish he was here to hear that. Um, I had it in my notes. I had it for him. Um, but I'm sure many of you have, have experienced this, or maybe you've, um, you've been, gotten enraptured in a show in Netflix, and you just you find yourself just doing what they call binge-watching, right? And just one show after another. Before uh, Netflix, Michelle and I experienced this with the show 24. Do you guys remember 24? And I'm telling you, nothing could cliffhang you like 24. Um, it would be, you know, Tuesday night, 1 a.m., we got to work the next day, and it would end, and our heart rate's about 150, and we're like, all right, all right one more, one more. We're going to hold each other accountable, one more. Um, it's kind of the way, I, I, if I can repurpose that, that phrase of binge watching, I picture these people binge listening, right? They're just, they're fixated on this word and, and time really isn't an issue. The other commitments that they have are not an issue. They're listening to the word and they're learning about their savior. And it's interesting to note, I mean, I mean he's reading from the, the first 
five books of the Bible. I mean, don't you know, when it got to Leviticus, it may have been a little tough, right? But they were still there standing, listening. It's a good word for us. And not only were they seeking out teaching and attentively listening, but they made eager preparations. Verse 4, the scribe Ezra stood on a high platform made for this purpose. So they built a platform, right? So this obviously took planning and forethought, and it, it wasn't just some thrown-together deal. Because they had Ezra and 13 other guys that P.J. read for us standing up on the platform together. His, his entourage was up there. This shows eagerness. Preparation shows eagerness and interest. It's just like showing up for a job interview, right? And if you show up and the interviewer you know, begins asking you questions, it becomes obvious, like, you don't even know what the company does. You don't know anything about your interview. You know, your shirt's wrinkled. You were late. You know, you don't have any questions. You know, you seem unprepared. You seem that this is, it's, it's not a big deal. It doesn't bode well for you versus if you show up and you, you're eager and you're prepared and you've done your research and you've planned for this, it communicates interest and eagerness. So you can see that um, in the people in this, uh, in this account, that there's an eagerness to hear from the Lord that they build this platform and accomplish visibility. They want all the people to be able to see Ezra, but it also accomplishes um, establishing significance and reverence for God's word, of, of giving God's word a place of prominence and authority. And Ezra brings this, I mean, you, you can picture this big book that he comes and brings up on this platform and, and opens up. Maybe you've, you've experienced something like this. Maybe you've attended a church service at more of a, um, a high church tradition where oftentimes the, the pulpit is elevated, right? Maybe you've been to some, sometimes it's even a little bit, you know, you know, feel like you're craning your neck, right? But sometimes the, the pulpit's elevated, and, and it's a tangible way for people to be reminded that we are sitting under the Word, that the Word has authority over our life, that we're not final arbiters of truth ourselves. We know God's word reveals truth. It's our authority. And so we notice this in the lives of the people. And maybe, maybe you're doing this right now. You're, you're seeing their hunger for the word, and then you're thinking about your own life, and there's some distance between the two. So what if, what if you don't desire the word? What if you're just being honest this morning, and God's word isn't desirable? You're not hungering for it. 1 Peter 2 is helpful. The Spirit of God creates a desire for the Word of God. That's what we learn in 1 Peter. It says this, Like newborn infants, desire the pure milk of the Word, so that you may grow up into your salvation if you have tasted that the Lord is good. So hunger for God's Word is a sign of spiritual growth. It's a sign that His Spirit is, is working in you. But what if you're not hungering for God's Word? What if that's you this morning? And real simple, right where you are, right where you are, just pray this. Pray this to the Lord right now. Lord, like a newborn infant, help me desire the pure milk of the word. Begin to pray and ask him to restore this desire for the word. You can do that right now. So number one, pray. Number two, act in faith. Be active. Get into the scriptures and beg for the Holy Spirit to meet you there and illuminate it for you. I know God wants to answer that prayer. So pray and act in faith. And see, these people wanted to hear from God. That's why they wanted to, to gather and stand in the sun for six hours. 
They wanted the book because they wanted to see and know and delight in their God. And he reveals himself through Scripture. And so we go to the Scriptures, not just to check it off a list, but we go to the Scriptures to see Jesus. That's how we, we meet and know and, and come to, to love even more deeply our Savior. So not, not just do we notice they're hungry for the Word, in verses 4 and then in verses 7 and 8, we notice this as well. We notice the, the communal nature of teaching, hearing, and understanding God's Word, right? This isn't an, an individual endeavor. Look at verse 4. And again, I'll make it through the sermon without reading these names. The scribe of Ezra stood on a high wooden platform made for this purpose. And then he's got these six guys on his right and six guys on his left. And so he's got this entourage with him on the platform, but then it continues. And it lists 13 more names in verse 7. And it says, these guys were Levites who explained the law to the people as they stood in their places. They read out of the book of the law of God, translating and giving the meaning so that people could understand what was read. It was a communal thing. It was an altogether thing. They're all together gathered in the square from every walk of life, standing, listening. And then you see Ezra. He's up there on the platform. He has these six guys on his right, seven on his left. You know, commentators aren't exactly sure who this entourage was, but, you know, some thought maybe it's a group that helps him teach and prepare, a community he was with. Others thought maybe just community leaders. But nonetheless... They're important people who are standing in solidarity and support of Ezra. But it continues from there that there's a, a group of 13 more people. And you get the, the impression that they're stationed all out through the crowd, these 13 guys. And what are they doing? They're repeating the words that Ezra's saying. They're answering questions. They're helping others understand God's word. Isn't this a beautiful thing? Don't you just see the, the body of Christ at work? And don't we need that more than just hearing, you know, a sermon podcast or hearing one person um, preach to us? Like, that's, that's part of the role of the body, that we, we work this truth into each other's lives. It's a beautiful thing. So Ezra had a community of folks that, that helped him interpret and teach and get the word in the hearts and minds of the hearers. And we, we need each other. We, that's one of the reasons it's important to gather with one another. We need more than just one person speaking truth. We need to see it and hear it in other people's lives. And I wanted to pause right here and just, just make a couple leadership principles here that I see as well. I think Andy's mentioned it. In another sermon, sometimes the book of Nehemiah is reduced to leadership principles, and it's certainly much more than that. Um, but there are some fantastic leadership principles in the book of Nehemiah. So we'll pause here between point two and three, and I'm going I'm to tease out a couple leadership principles. Um, maybe you missed a couple weeks in this series, um, and, and you're, you're sitting here, and you're kind of like, okay, maybe, you know, last time I was here, they were talking about Nehemiah. And then there's this guy up here, and he's talking about Ezra. Like, like did we switch series or something? Did I miss something here? Um, so it's interesting that, that, that Nehemiah is a central figure all throughout the early part of this book. And then at this significant moment, Ezra is the one who is front and center, not Nehemiah. There's this principle I want us to understand. A good leader knows their limitations and appreciates 
empowers, and celebrates the gifts and skills of others on their team. I'll say it one more time. A good leader knows their limitations and appreciates, empowers, and celebrates the gifts and skills of others on their team. So it's interesting. I have a ton of respect for Nehemiah. I mean, it would be real easy for him to want the spotlight in this point. I mean, after all, he's the, he's the cupbearer that boldly approached the king. He's the one that got this whole thing started. He's the one who diligently spent time praying and planning. He's the visionary who organized and delegated. He's the one who led by example and jumped down, got in the trenches, and helped the builders build. He's the one who's been withstanding this onslaught of the haters that we looked at last week, these naysayers. And now he gets to this culminating moment, and Ezra's in front. Doesn't even look like Nehemiah's on the platform. Ezra had a teaching gift, and Nehemiah recognized that. We read in the book of Ezra about him that Ezra was skilled in the law of Moses that the Lord, the God of Israel, had given for the hand of the Lord God was on him. So if you have influence, if you have leadership, elevate others on your team. Develop their gifts. Don't feel the need to be the smartest person in the room. Resist the pressure to have all the answers. Empower others. Celebrate their gifts and skill sets that God has given them and celebrate the way that God has wired others in the body. So it's not just to those who may lead a team or lead an organization. That's, that's friend groups. That's the body of Christ. Celebrate the way the Lord has wired other people and don't need to be the person in front all of the time. See, both these men love God and both are working according to their gifting. But leader, deferring to others doesn't show weakness, but it shows strength. And I'll take it even one step further with this one. I was thinking back about Ezra's prayer in Nehemiah 1. Don't you I loved that sermon that day. But he prays this powerful prayer, and he's praying for the exiles to return to Jerusalem and to worship the Lord. And so he begins quoting scripture, and it's a beautiful prayer. And it, and it occurred to me that this prayer from Nehemiah 1 is now being answered in Nehemiah 8. It's a really neat thing. But I just want to, I wonder if Nehemiah, when he prayed that prayer in Nehemiah 1, knew that he wasn't going to be the one who was up in front when it was answered. And so the question is this, are you okay with God answering your ambitious prayers through somebody else's skill set? Will your ego allow for that? It's an important thing, and, and I think a really impactful thing. So leadership principle number one, elevate others on your team, celebrate their gifts. Number two, stay faithful because you don't know when God will change hearts. Ezra had been doing this thing. I know it's the first we hear of him. He had been there for 13 years doing this, all right? It wasn't like this was his first sermon, and he you know, prepared some notes and walked up on this platform, and boom, this movement starts. He had been there for 13 years with seemingly no extraordinary results. He was there before Nehemiah got there, presumably teaching, um, being faithful to what the Lord had called him to. And then all of a sudden, on this one day in the Lord's timing, something amazing and surprising happened, that God was working in an extraordinary way. He was changing hearts. And so just to teachers, to leaders, to brother or sister who, who, who may be growing weary, just be faithful. It's God who changes hearts. He does it in his own time. So GC leader, if you're getting weary, 
Be faithful. It's the Lord who changes hearts. Maybe you have just a, a family member who's going through something tough, or maybe you just you want them to turn to the Lord. Just stay faithful. Don't give up. The Lord changes hearts in his own timing. You don't know when he's going to do it. So um, jumping back, they, we notice their hunger for the word. We notice the communal nature of teaching, hearing, understanding God's word. Last and third point, we notice the effect of God's word on the people. It had an effect on them when they heard it. So it affected them in a few ways. Number one, it caused worship. In verse 6, Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and with their hands lifted, uplifted, all the people said, Amen, Amen. And they knelt low and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. So they blessed God. These, this, this word that they, heard, that they heard affected them. And they said, amen, we agree. We're lifting up our hands. They're kneeling in worship that, that receiving the word is an act of worship. Right? I know you guys know this, but, but, but the songs that we get led in is an act of worship. The way in which we receive and respond to the word is also an act of worship. And so hearing this word this day produced worship in the people. And secondly, hearing the word brings conviction. Verse 9, Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who were instructing the people said to all of them, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. Listen to this, for all the people were weeping as they heard the words of the law. So as these people heard these words, they were, they were made aware of their sin, similar to how Nathan made David aware of his sin. Many of the exiles at this point were, were really ignorant of God's law, and now they were understanding what pleased him and what did not please him. They were seeing the, the history that they were confronted with the consequences of their sin, the, the Babylonian captivity, the broken walls. And all of a sudden, the weight of all this is landing on them, and they're, they're beginning to weep. I think, um, it, to me, it seems similar to what we see in Isaiah chapter 6, right? That Isaiah sees God's holiness, and what's his response? Do you remember? Woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. That when we see God's holiness, oftentimes, it can cause us to weep because we see um, our unholiness in comparison. And so, brother and sister, that's part of the purpose of the word. Don't resist the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Even if it's uncomfortable, don't resist it. It's how we're led to repentance and renewal. It's the beginning of change and growth. It's part of the process of sanctification. Let the word convict you. It's one of the ways we know we belong to Christ. I mean, do you hate your sin? It's one of the ways you know you're Christ. But God's word doesn't leave us in this conviction. There's certainly place for that. It doesn't leave them there. We don't remain in this place of weeping over our sin forever, but our sorrow gives way to joy. So it leads to rejoicing. Look at verse 10. Then he said to them, Go and eat what is rich, drink what is sweet, and send portions to those who have nothing prepared, since today is holy to our Lord. Do not grieve, because the joy of the Lord is your strength. Have you ever um, made a statement, and, and you intended to accomplish one thing with your statement, 
and the exact opposite thing was accomplished when you said that thing. Um, if you can't get a, a clear example of this in your mind, I'll, I'll make it easy for you. The next time you're around someone who's angry and upset, just look right at them and say, you need to calm down. All right, just say that to him. It's scientifically proven to have that, the opposite effect. It does not work. This is kind of an ironic day here because this was supposed to be a joyous celebration. This was the start of the, the Feast of Tabernacles. It launched this season of celebrating God's grace because the, the Day of Atonement was right around the corner. It was this joyful time, and trumpets were going to be played, and they were going to feast later that day. Everybody's weeping and mourning, and they're broken over their sin. Their sorrow because of their sin. And so Ezra and Nehemiah and the leaders say, hey, guys, stop. Stop crying and start celebrating. See, there's sorrow because of their sin, but there's joy for them also. Because there's this realization that even though all of these things happen, even though this sin is true, it's real, there's consequences for this. That God has not cast you out. That he is merciful. So looking back, they had grief, but looking forward, they had hope. Look at everything the Lord has done. He wasn't finished with them. He had restored the city, repopulated it. He had brought them teachers to explain God's word to them. So they're saying, guys, that's enough weeping. There's things to celebrate as well. The joy of the Lord is our strength. You see, the law makes us aware of our sin, and we weep and we grieve appropriately, but the gospel tells us about the solution, Jesus, and in him we rejoice. I love how um, a lady named Nancy Guthrie imagines this scene that day. Picture this in your mind's eye. She writes this. Tears began to trickle down their faces as they heard about, understood, and felt the way to the failure of God's people over the centuries. But that's not all they heard. They saw in shadows the Redeemer who would accomplish this full restoration. As Ezra read the law of Moses and the Levites moved through the crowd to explain it, the people understood the significance of so much in their lives that had devolved into meaningless religious, religious ritual. From Genesis... They would have heard how God provided a substitute ram caught in a thicket so that Abraham would, did not have to sacrifice his beloved son. When Ezra got to Exodus, they would have learned how God made a provision for a lamb to be sacrificed for every household on Passover night in place of the firstborn. And when Ezra got to Leviticus, they would have heard of God's instructions for the Day of Atonement when a single animal was sacrificed for the sins of the whole nation. It was pictured for them again and again that someone can be made right with God only on the basis of the lamb God has provided. They couldn't clearly see the perfect lamb God was going to provide, but as they heard and understood the book of the law as Ezra read it, a longing in them grew for the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Isn't that good? My prayer for you, brother and sister, my prayer for myself is that our access and familiarity with the scriptures does not produce apathy towards the scriptures 
but that we would be able to say along with the psalmist in 119, 161, that my heart stands in awe of your words. So church, let the word of Christ dwell richly among you in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another through psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. We love the Bible because the Bible is about Jesus. We need the Bible because we don't know Jesus without it. He's the hero of, of the Scripture, so go to the Scriptures to see your Savior. Let's pray for awakened hearts. Let's pray for hearts that hunger for the Word and hearts that long to know Jesus. Let's pray. Father, you're so good to us. Father, you have given us revelation through the words of Scripture. Father, you've protected and preserved it for years and years. And Lord, now we have access to these holy Scriptures to be able to know you better. And Father, forgive us for our apathy at times. The scripture, Lord, would you renew in us, Lord, a hunger for your word like a newborn baby craves milk. Lord, may we crave the word of God. Father, we yield to you because we know that your spirit is the only one who can change hearts. So trying harder and resolve to do better, Lord, it's not going to work. Lord, we need you to change our hearts, to remind us of how good your truth is. Father, be with my brothers and sisters this morning. Help us to treasure your word as we ought and help us to, to better know and love and trust and obey your son by how we go to the scriptures and see him. So Father, we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.